we ended with the book of Revelation in the end of our story. And I have to be honest with you, I, I'm like really disappointed that the story's over. In fact, I almost feel like I want to go back and see it again. You know how that is when you see a, something really good and you go, wow, I, I could, you know what, I could go back and, and watch that whole thing again. That's kind of how I feel about the story. In fact, you know what I believe? I believe that one day in eternity, we're going to go over this redemptive story over and over and over again. I think the redemptive story is going to be one that will stick with us for eternity because in the redemptive story, God has demonstrated in such a powerful way his character, all of his qualities, his power, his love, his judgment, his justice, his mercy, his grace. And so this story that we have gone through, it is going to be a story that we never forget. And it will always be with us. What's unique about the story, it was not created in some fictional mind of a human author. This is a story that's being written in history. And so it's being written today in, uh, in the day in which you and I live. Vicki and I saw uh, War Room this last week. How many of you have seen that movie? <clears throat> okay, just a few. I, I would recommend, if you can see that movie, I would recommend everybody see that movie. Is a really powerful story about the power of prayer. And uh, it will convict you and, and it will motivate you to to consider your own life of prayer. So, and by the way, uh, the, one of the stars of the show in that movie is about 80 years old. So don't think you're too old, okay? Uh, this, this will speak, if you're 90 or 9, you will have a, a powerful message because there's about a 9-year-old in there and there's a, uh, a very elderly woman who is a, 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 just a great character in the story. So what did we do after the movie and we were in the car? What do you think we did on the way home? We talked about the movie. You know what you do? You see a movie, you come out of the movie, you go, you know what, I just, you know, I really like this scene, and I, I really thought, I really like this character, and, and you know, this is what I, this is what, this is what the director was trying to get across in this, in this movie. That's what we do. We talk about the movie. And so, this morning, what I, what I want to do on this Labor Day weekend, before we leave the story behind, I, I just want to talk about the movie, all right? I want to talk about the story, and, and what I did was I, I just sat down and I thought, what are those things that stand out to me in the story? Now that we walked through it, what are those things that I want to reiterate that just kind of really stood out? And so I picked five things. They were the first five things that came into my mind. Now as I've gone through the message this week, I'm going, oh, but I have to leave out this one. And so... You know how that is. So you will have, I mean, if you did that, you would have different things than what I have. But I want to share this morning with you five, five things that stood out for me uh, from the story. So here they are. The first thing that, that stood out to me in the story is the seamless flow of this story. Now, for many people, the Bible is like a reader's, they look at it like a reader's digest uh, collection of short stories. Different stories, somewhat unrelated. You know how those short story reader digest books are. And people look at the Bible as a conglomeration of, of kind of 
unconnected things that are happening. You know, and then you got the Old Testament and the New Testament. It almost seems like two different gods. And, and, and you have Jesus who seems so removed from the Old Testament. And as we walk through the story, I mean, I've been, I've been in the Bible a long time. We see this flow. I mean, this has just been one connected story from Genesis through Revelation. And it was written, imagine this, it's written by 40 different authors over 40 generations, 1,500 years, in three languages, written by doctors and lawyers and fishermen and farmers, people from all occupations. And yet this story has one seamless flow. And you remember the flow? We start in Genesis. We did this many weeks. You know, we start with the creation story. And then there's the fall of man, which has impacted the day in which, in which you and I live. And then we have the impact of the fall, and, and things get so bad that God sends this flood. By the way, 350 there are 350 different civilizations that have an account of the flood. That might lend you to believe that there actually was a flood. And so we have the flood where God brings judgment and, and through, through the ark and Noah. And then God begins his plan and he picks a man named Abraham. And then his son Isaac, who they miraculously, he and, and Sarah have at almost 100 years of age, and then the story is just filled with one miraculous thing after another. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And they end up growing and multiplying and in the land of Egypt and they're enslaved. And then God sends Moses who delivers them. And he's living out the story of your life and mine. Of people who are enslaved. Not enslaved to Egypt, but enslaved to sin. Of people who need a deliverer, not Moses, but it's going to be Christ. Of people who live their lives out through the wilderness as we live out our lives. People that are headed to the promised land. So we, we begin to see that this Old Testament is really just living out an analogy of what's going on in each of our lives. Moses, Joshua, the judges, and then the kings looking for someone to lead, looking for someone to deliver. And there's Saul and David and Solomon. But they're all so imperfect. They all fail. They all fall. And then we see the coming, finally, of the one true deliverer. And God enters the planet. God himself comes down the form of a baby. And Christ is born, lives a lives a sinless life, dies on that cross, is buried, and when it seems like everything is lost in the story, the, the most amazing point in the story is resurrected from the dead, ascends to the Father and sends his Holy Spirit upon his church and begins to build now, not a temple built with hands, but of people, called out ones, the church, and, and they are to, to go out and share the gospel every week, we share that gospel and God is calling in and gathering his church. And then in the very end of the story, by God's grace, he tells us the end of the story before it happens. And he tells us that one day he is returning and uh, there's going to be an, an amazing unfolding. 
and God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. We go, just like way back in the beginning when God created the heaven and the earth, it will be a new heaven and a new earth. Just like the tree of life in the garden, the tree of life will be in this new world and God will dwell with his people. And all the implications of sin, all the implications of that fall will be gone. And so we see this amazing, seamless flow of this story from Genesis to Revelation. It is a miracle that 40 different authors over 1,500 years could write the books of this story, and they flow and they fit uh, all the way through. It's just amazing, and it was amazing to me, the seamlessness of this story. The second thing, the second thing that struck me was the pervasiveness of the fall. The pervasiveness of the fall, how it just impacted everything and everybody. Everything and everybody. The world dramatically changed. And what struck me was the inability of people not to sin. I mean, sometimes you want to tear your hair out. You're, Israel is just like, you know, we get into the book of Judges and it's sin, repent, you know. God, God delivers, and then they, they stray again, and they fall away, and they end up in hardship, and they repent, and God delivers, and we just keep going through this cycle over and over and over again. And we're going, how can these people be so, how can they do this over and over again? And then we look in the mirror, and we, we know why. Because we do the same thing as people. And everybody falls. You know, everybody, Abraham had his stuff, Moses had his stuff. Uh, you know, Elijah, the great prophet of God, he's a, he gets so discouraged, he says, God, you know, just take my life. He's ready to commit suicide. And so we see the fallenness in, in Israel in the Old Testament, but it wasn't just Israel. You know, you get into the New Testament in the church. And the first church is there, and there's a major problem on the benevolent team. And there's a problems in the church, and, and they, they, they felt like there was unfair distribution of the funds to some of the widows. And so there's tension in the church. We see Ananias and Sapphira, who dropped dead on, on the steps of the church for lying about things. We see... The Corinthian church, to which Paul writes, I mean, they have huge problems. There's somebody sleeping with their dad's wife, and there's people are taking each other to court and lawsuits, and people are getting drunk at communion. And don't think this was a, a you know, we look back at the early church and we say, wow, if we could just be like them. <laughs> Folks, they're just like us. And we're just like them. And so we just see this pervasiveness, you know, of the fall. We realize that we are no different. And, and I think the day is coming when the Lord returns and we put off this old nature that we have to deal with every day. I think on that day we're going to realize, we're going to go, man, were we sinful. Oh, we were so fallen. You know, we had no idea. You get up in the morning, we're discouraged. We have negative thoughts. We're condemning of ourselves. We, 
We think poorly of other people. We have anger. We have unforgiveness. I mean, all this stuff that's a part of our life, it will be gone. And we'll go, I I can't believe how different it is when the implications of the fall have been removed. So, number two, just, just how dramatically the fall has affected everybody, including you and including me. Well, number three, the other thing that's, a third thing that just struck me from the story was, was the reality of God's judgment. The reality of God's judgment. And, and this is so critical today because there is such a lack of understanding of God's judgment in the day in which you and I live. Now, people are very quick to look at the quality of God, which is his love. Very quick to point out God's love. And people say, we know if God is a, a God of love, then he should be, he should be, if that's who God is, he should be the most loving being that there is. He should be very loving. He should be a God that wouldn't send people to hell. And they're right. God is a very loving God. In fact, this whole book, and I, I said this in the very beginning, this whole book will tell you the extent to which God would go to save us from hell, which is simply a place of separation from him. This book demonstrates the extent to which God would go to pour out his love, that while we were yet sinners, imagine this, that while we were yet sinners, that Christ would die for us. So they're absolutely right. If God is who he says he is, then he should be a God of of immense love. But when it comes to God's justice, they take a pass on that one. So if God is truly just, then every wrong, right? If he's truly, perfectly just, every wrong must be punished. There must be a, a consequence to every, every wrong. And so we see that in the story, we see that you know, as you walk through the story, you, you can't help but notice from the very beginning, in fact, Adam and Eve sin and what happens? Some animal dies, right? They used leaves and God brought them animal skins. Why did he do that? He did that because to cover the shame of man's sin, something had to die. An animal had to be sacrificed so that man's shame could be covered. And so we have a whole book, the book of Leviticus, and we have, you know, as you read through the Old Testament, people complain and they go, you know, it's just, I mean, it's all this blood and sacrificing and people are bringing all these sacrifices and, and, and why, why is the Bible all about sacrificing animals and blood. Mark Trisco, who uh, pastored out in Seattle when new believers came to faith, the first book he would have them read is Leviticus. People scratched it and said, why would you read Leviticus? Because he said in Leviticus, you need to understand on the front end that every sin must be atoned for. And so the Old Testament is setting us up 
and is connecting us with the ultimate sacrifice of Christ who would come. And he would be the ultimate sacrifice. And so we see as, as people sin, God is always reminding us there are consequences. And so you go through the story, you know, and no matter where you turn, you continue to see the consequences of sin. We see it with Adam and Eve. We see it in Noah's day. We see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see Israel in the wilderness. We see God's judgment in Moses' life. We see it with David and Solomon. We see God's judgment with Saul for his sin. And ultimately, the greatest moment of, just, of judgment of all takes place in the New Testament on the cross. That was the greatest judgment of all when the God of this universe took on and took the penalty for your sin and mine. Why? Because God is fully just and his justice must fully be metered out against sin. Just an amazing part of the story. And so we see here, the thing that just struck me through this whole story is, is God's judgment against sin. And in the end, in God's incredible love, all those who respond to Christ will be saved. And because he's perfectly judged, just those who reject him will be ultimately judged. A very significant part of the story. Number four. The other thing that, that just struck me about this story is the centrality of Jesus Christ in this story centrality of Jesus Christ. You go way back to Genesis 3, and it says, here's what's going to happen. He's talking to Satan now. He says, Satan, out of the seed of a woman, someone is going to be born, and you're going to strike him on the heel, and he is going to crush your head. He is going to destroy you. Genesis 3, very beginning of the story, we have this prediction. If you're reading the story, you should be thinking all through the story. Who's this one that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent? Who's going to crush Satan? Who's going to deliver this final blow to him? This schemer, this deceiver, this one who's out to kill and destroy. Who's going to take care of this culprit? So we see hints of this throughout the story. And then we see the ark as a metaphor of, of how people are going to, those who are in the ark are going to be saved from God's judgment picture of the coming Christ. We see Abraham and Isaac and up there ready to sacrifice his son and God provides a sacrifice. We see a metaphor of the day when God would send his own son but there would be no lamb because that son, the very son of God, would be sacrificed. We see this. There are over 350 prophecies about the coming of Christ in the Old Testament. We see who this Jesus Christ is in the book of Colossians. I mean, listen to who he is. For by him, he's talking about Christ now. He is the, verse 15, chapter 1, Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and listen to this, in him all things hold together. 
Not some things, all things are held together. You're sitting in your seat, gravity is coming down, this world is, our world is in its orbit. Everything in the universe is held together through him. That's who Jesus Christ is. And I get really riled up inside of me when people say things like, Jesus, he was a good teacher. He was a, 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 he was a, he was a great prophet like Muhammad or, or Gandhi, you know, who, who came to show us how to live. That he is one of, of many, that he is not unique from others. And I'm here to tell you, you can't even begin to compare him with, with anyone else. I mean, they're just mere men. And so, you know, I, I, I get this, something rises up within me when, when I hear that Jesus is just one way. Christ died for my sin. Nobody else did that. Christ right now is interceding for me before the Father. Nobody else can do that. Jesus Christ is going to come again and raise me from the dead. Muhammad's not going to do that. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the, he is the rescuer. No one is saved by faith. No one is saved by faith. If you were saved by faith, then we could say people that have faith, as long as they have strong faith, it doesn't really matter if it's in Jesus or somebody else, uh, no, you're not saved by faith. You're saved by Jesus. You're saved through faith by Jesus, and he will share that position with no one else. There is no one else like him. And so we see here in this story the, the centrality of who Christ is. Well, here's the last one. The last one is the thing that struck me, that, that just grabs me about the story. And it, you know, I think, I think Revelation was meant to grab us. I think it was meant to be something that's, it's such a powerful chapter in the Bible. It's such a powerful ending. And I think it's intended to constantly be on our minds. And we should be thinking about the promise of the return to glory. When all is said and done, in the end, things are going to be perfect. Things are going to be full. Things are going to be complete. And there's going to be a place where we experience his full glory in all things. I mean, I was so happy about Cindy's news. I was just thrilled my soul. But Cindy alluded to this God's glory and our hope is not dependent on any news, good or bad, that we get from the doctor. Because nothing can take away this hope that we have that God is returning us to the place of glory. Nothing can thwart God's plans and purposes that we might see his glory. And so in in John 17, Jesus is praying. And, and this is what he prays. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Another word for glory is beauty. 
Glory sometimes is a hard word to get a hold of. And so what he's saying is, Lord, Jesus is saying, I can't wait for the day when people can gaze upon my beauty. When people will find great pleasure and joy in my beauty. And this is what happens in the end of the story. We get to behold the God in all his fullness. Everything will be restored. It's not just going to be better. It's not going to be really good. It's not going to be 99.9%. It will be perfect because that is the character of God. 100% complete. And the ultimate glory we're going to see is not the streets of gold. It's not those crystal walls in the new Jerusalem. It's not the, the river flowing by the tree of life. It's not going to be in the, in the music like we've never heard before, the colors that we've never seen before, the tastes that we've never tasted before. The greatest thing about glory, the greatest thing about that day is we're going to get to see God in all his beauty. That will be the most amazing thing. We're going to get to fully, fully feel and know his love. We're going to get to fully know his grace. We're going to get to fully know joy. And we're going to see the fullness of his wisdom. If you think the story looks amazing now, wait till that day. When you see just how amazing God's story is, that is the purpose for which God saves his people. I'm going to conclude with, with this clip from, uh, <clears throat> from John Piper, and uh, it illustrates the point. I don't know that you are familiar with anyone saying, when Christ died for me, the best thing he purchased for me is the greatest gift of the love of God, namely God's gift of the beauty of God to satisfy my soul forever. I don't know how many of you ever talked that way. Or when you got saved, think that's what happened. So here's my, here's why I'm preaching on this. I want you, true Christian, to know that happened to you and you've experienced that. Nobody may have ever taught you the language to use to define what God really did in your life. And then there's others of you who've been playing this game called religion because it's a cool group on your campus and you've never seen it. I'm talking a foreign language to you right now. I don't even know what you mean by the beauty of God. When you are confronted with infinite, all-satisfying beauty, the question is not, so what's your decision? The question is, what do you see? Do you see Christ in the gospel as beautiful? More beautiful, more glorious, more satisfying than anything else? That's the question. That is the root question. When you are presented with infinite beauty, all-satisfying beauty, the question is not, so, what's your decision? It doesn't work like that. You show me a painting, I think it's boring, and you're telling me to decide, decide. It's not what you do when you see something. You don't decide. You just either see it as boring, 
see it as beautiful. You don't decide to see it as beautiful. If, if you tell me I'm supposed to write on the test, it's beautiful. I can do that, but there's a name for that. It's called lying or hypocrisy. Beneath and before, I could ever decide to lay my life in the discipleship of Jesus Christ. I had to see him. Otherwise, I'm playing with him. Does somebody get an arm on my back? It might be called hell. It might be called approval of parents. It's just making me do this. I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen anything beautiful. I haven't seen anything infinitely worthy of my affections. I had to. I'll go anywhere with you. I'll do anything for you because I've seen you are infinite, all-satisfying beauty forever. There is no religion, no movement, nothing in the world that could ever come close to what you are for me. You can make decisions all your life long about Jesus and about your life. And those decisions must be made. They are either good or bad. And they must be, if they're going to be authentic discipleship, they must be rooted in, have you seen him? Your saving faith is not at root a decision. It is at root seeing beauty, all-compelling, all-surpassing, all-satisfying. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that one day we will be like you, not because we decide to be, but because we will see you as you are. And we will see you in all of your glory and all of your beauty. The glory which you had before the creation of the world. And it will transform us simply by seeing you for who you are. Father, give us a vision of who you are today. Lord, break through the veil. Father, the fog that we see many times and we pray that you'd give us just that vision of who you are. What an amazing thing it is today to come here and call ourselves your people, to gather around this communion table, and to realize that there's no condemnation now in our lives, that we are your children, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven. That we have a, a love that's now been poured out in our lives that nothing in all creation can ever take away. No power, no demon. No circumstance, nothing. And so, Father, we, we praise you today for this work. Father, as your church, might we be people that are just enamored with your beauty and who are willing to lay down our lives because we have seen you. Father, may you do your work in each of us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.